What's up, everyone, and welcome to Mike Check. I'm your host, Mike Velasquez, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things fitness, wellness, rehab, and more importantly, the constant pursuit of knowing better in order to do better for the people that we serve. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Mike Check. I'm your host, Mike Velasquez, and today I'm super excited to have Eric Lagoy on the podcast with me. What's up, Eric? Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for having me on, Mike. Absolutely. Uh, I'm super excited. I've been wanting to have uh, you on the podcast for a while, and I know you're a very busy guy, so I'm super <laughs> happy that uh, I finally got to, to have you on tonight. So um, definitely looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have. Yeah, now you know that I wasn't just dodging you. I really did want to be on. <laughs> My schedules get crazy. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. Um, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit uh, later to figure out kind of how you juggle all the things that you have going on. Um, but uh, for me, you know, obviously, I, you know, the opportunity to, to know you through, um, I guess, when I was in school, I learned about you through clinical athlete and kind of went to you for PT early on. And then now um, I have the opportunity to work, you know, I'll be in different clinics um, together through Gaylord. Um, for anyone that doesn't know you or doesn't know a whole lot about you, can you just give us a brief background on kind of who you are and what you do and, and that sort of thing? Sure. Um so if I'll go back to, I'll start at like undergrad, I guess I'll yeah. go all the way back. So I went to, to UConn for undergrad and grad school and I studied uh, exercise science in undergrad and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with that uh, position. So I ended up interning as a strength and conditioning coach at Cressy Performance, which is now Cressy Sport Performance, um, coached there for a while and finished up my schooling and through my internship decided that I felt more comfortable in the rehab setting than like on the performance side, I guess, at that point in my life. So I uh, decided to go to PT school also at UConn um, and sort of had more of a sports medicine focus uh, given my background. Um, but as I got into PT school, you start learning about, you know, acute care settings and neuro and everything sort of interests me. So I tried to be pretty open uh, when I was in school, knowing that I still wanted to do ortho when I graduated. And I've spent pretty much my career graduating in 2012, working for Gaylord Hospital. Um, I'm in the Cheshire location now. Uh, I, I teach adjunct faculty professor at Quinnipiac, where I teach an exercise uh, prescription and physiology course um, for PT students. And then I am a coach, primarily remote coaching for Resilient Training Lab. Um, so that's my three jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 being a father on top of that all, you know, yeah. husband, you husband, know, father, homeowner, yeah. homeowner, yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a lot going on there. Yeah. Um, so I know you went to to UConn. Uh, shout out to all the Huskies out there. That's right. Um, for undergrad, when you know, when was it that you know PT school started becoming kind of more of a thought in your head, like like you were saying, being more interested in the rehab side of things? Yeah. Um, what was it that kind of led you along that path? I uh, I think it was my sophomore year. At the time, they had a major called like rehab science major. Uh, so I thought that that sounded interesting to me. So I was going to just switch my major from biology to rehab science major. When I went to do that, the university actually got rid of that major as an option. 
um, because the PT program was transitioning to a doctoral program. And so they had like other undergraduate bachelor degrees you would get that would set you up for that. So instead of being able to be a rehab science type major, um, they gave me this list of similar majors to choose from. One of them was exercise science. So I was kind of always going between, you know, more medical versus uh, more performance-based. So I said, well, if these are my options, I'll go with the exercise science option. Um, and then as graduation got closer, not really knowing what the next move was, was what prompted me to do the internship with Eric Cressy. And when I was there, uh, a physical therapist used to come in, John Poloff, uh, he used to come in and work with some of the athletes there. So that was really my first exposure to physical therapy. And I just started getting into some of the kinesiology and human anatomy books that uh, Eric Cressy had and picking John's brain a little bit. Uh, and then realizing that that was probably more where my personality, I think, was a better fit. And at the end of my internship, you know, Eric Cressy's advice to me was if he could do it all over again, he said that he would have went to PT school too, because it still would have allowed him to do strength and conditioning, um, but also open up more doors that he doesn't have not having that degree. So those were probably like that junior year of undergrad was probably really what made me um, rethink what's the next move here after my senior year and decide to to pursue PT. So I, re I remember calling my dad up because he used to always hound me um, about like what I'm going to do when I graduate. My brother and myself were some of the first people in our family to go to college. So he was just so worried that I was going to go and just like get a job doing something that didn't I didn't use my education with. So I called him up. I said, dad, I, I know what I want to do. Uh, but I got to go back to school for three years. <laughs> and he was like, you're on your own, man. <laughs> so I just, yeah, that's the short version of that story. <laughs> cool. Um, aside from, you know, you know, sounds like kind of the internship experience you had played into that decision-making as well. Uh, did you ever have any experience yourself as a patient going to PT at all? Or was that, was that a new thing for you? Yeah. Actually, I'm probably one of the few PTs that never had PT. <laughs> um, it was purely driven by that strength and conditioning okay. background into that. I had probably the closest I got to PT was when I was on a clinical in Atlanta. I was playing a lot of basketball at the time and uh, I didn't really know Atlanta. So I was just hitting up every park and that I could find where people were playing and I ended up in a pretty rough neighborhood, but I started, I kept playing anyways. And I like really jacked up like inversion, eversion, ankle sprain, and everybody that I was playing with was like patting me on the back, loving it, <laughs> you know, cause I got up and walked it off sort of thing. And then I went to clinic the next day and my, my CI was just like, Oh my gosh, what did you do? We got to make sure you don't have a fracture. And then she started like helping me rehab it a little bit. But um, at that point I was like going into my third year. So I was like, okay, this is my opportunity to, to rehab myself. So I started mm -hmm. digging into like ankle sprain literature and you know, how do I modify my programming? Cause I wanted to keep working out. Um, so that was probably the closest I got to like actually okay. having PT. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I think a lot of people in my class were just like, you know, had that classic example of like, you know, being a high school athlete or something and you go to PT and then you realize that it's something that you want to do because it, right. it was impactful for you. But, um, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, when you were going to PT school, did you, were you aware of like any of the other, I guess fields like in physical therapy besides like outpatient ortho. Cause I know for me, like I really didn't know anything about like acute care, not really anything about neuro. So was that all, does that stuff that you knew about or was that all brand new when you went to PT school as well? Um, so 
after my internship at Cressy's, I applied to work as an aide um, in ortho. Okay. And so working with the aides and getting exposures, to, I already knew I wanted to go to PT school at this time. So I thought that'd be a, a nice way to mm-hmm. boost my, my resume and get some more experience in the field. So working with those PTs and hearing about, you know, their experience in neuro and um, they did a little bit of neuro where I was, they did some hand therapy. So I kind of started to realize that it was more than just like the sports medicine stuff. Um, I actually wanted to go to PT school, sort of your point, like on day one, they ask you what setting you want to work in. And I wanted to do like youth sports. So I said pediatrics was what I wanted to do. Um, And then as I got through PT school, I realized that when you say pediatrics, you typically are getting put into that neuro bucket. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I want to do like outpatient orthopediatrics, uh, like, you know, little league elbow and, you know, ACLs and stuff like that. And they're like, well, that's not really a, like a thing at this point. You know, we don't really have orthopediatrics. So I had to kind of choose and um, I want, I decided to stick with the ortho, obviously, but that's always been something I've enjoyed doing is working with, you know, ages, I guess, probably seven and up. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Nice. Um, going into PT school and maybe having, you know, more of that inclination towards, you know, whether it's, you know, ortho, whether that's, you know, with a pediatric population or older, um, was there anything that in your head, like day one of PT school, like what you were expecting to learn in terms of like all you need to learn having that background of strength and conditioning, you're like, all right, I have exercise prescription on lock. Like I just need to learn like, you know, the assessment and hands-on stuff. Like, was that kind of your thinking at that point? For sure. I, I, felt pretty comfortable, um, with, you know, exercise programming, I guess, uh, I wanted to learn more about how to program around injuries at, when I was at Cressy's. I mean, we had, you know, a lot of people that were in slings and had knee braces on and things had to be modified. So I was really interested in like the post-op uh, side of things, like what can somebody do? What can't they do? Um, I definitely thought I was like some sort of exercise, I don't want to say guru, but I thought I, I, I knew I was ahead of the curve when it came to exercise. So I also, at that time, really wanted to become like really good at manual therapy because I figured I've already decent at exercise. That makes sense to, you know, kind of have both sides of that spectrum. So that was a big driver for me at, at that point in my career anyways. Very cool. Um When was it, and maybe it, this could have been during school or after school, when you kind of started maybe questioning any of the stuff that you maybe had learned in school or kind of think like maybe with newer research coming out, kind of being like, Oh, that's a little bit different than, than what I learned. Yeah. Uh, so when I graduated, I wanted to work somewhere <clears throat> where I thought I'd have good mentorship. So I started, I thought the best spot for that after interviewing at a bunch of different places was the North Haven Gaylord location because um, a lot of the faculty there had, you know, extra board certifications like their OCS. Some of them were teaching um, at various universities in Connecticut. They did a lot of in-services. So I said, this is a great spot for me as a new grad. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, when we started doing like journal clubs and in-services there, and so that sort of exposed me to, you know, there's a lot more to this than I learned in school. And, um, you know, the population can be challenging there too. So I was like really struggling the first few months, just trying to read everything. Cause I just felt like I wasn't prepared with my schooling to be able to handle at least the caseload that I had, um, with my first job there. 
Um, so I, I sort of quickly kind of adopted, I guess what I would call a growth mindset. Um, and then when I started like branching out, I guess, through social media, primarily like through avenues like clinical athlete and finding clinicians that I think, um, really I connected with just fundamentally, um, and then hearing them, you know, reading research and questioning things, I started, uh, becoming a little bit more of a skeptic, uh, cause before like guys like Derek miles probably had a big influence on how I, um, read research and why I read so much research. Cause my first probably year or two out of school, if I pulled any research article and read it, I considered myself evidence-based, uh, without necessarily, you know, looking at methods and results and pitting that up against the other body of literature that might be available on a subject. You know, I was basically cherry picking things that fit, you know, whatever belief structure I had. So maybe like my second or third year out of school in particular, things started to really pick up. Um, and I attribute a lot of that to, you know, social media networking. Yeah. For a lot of, uh, the bad rap that social media gets definitely as, uh, myself included provided me with a lot of, you know, just connections with people that, you know, across the, um, you know, United States and even in other countries, like, you know, for example, like Ben Cormack, um, oh, yeah, for example. Yeah. So it definitely, uh, it has, it has, has its good side is even though it's also yeah. has the bad side to it. Um, now backtracking a little bit in school, um, kind of, were there any, any surprises kind of going through the schooling process or was it kind of what you expected it to be at least kind of going through your three years there? Um, I think everybody probably has that, you know, first year jitters, like this is a lot harder than undergrad <laughs> feeling. You don't really know anybody, even though I went to UConn, I mean, it's a big school. So mm-hmm. I was in grad school and, um, our, I don't know how big your, your class was at UConn, but it's a smaller program compared to a lot of other schools, you know? So by the end of the three years, you're, you're all brothers and sisters, but on day one, you don't really know anybody, mm-hmm. you know, and then they start hammering you with, uh, anatomy and all that stuff. So, um, I think, um, somewhere early on, they, they basically told us at some point, you're going to question whether you made the right decision with this or not. So I went through, I think everything that most people go through uh, with that, but then by my third year, I felt really comfortable, you know, studying, reading, treating, doing everything. So, uh, it did the job in terms of preparing me for the real world in that sense, at least. Very cool. Yeah. I definitely, uh, had some of those <laughs> crises in, in school, just being like, oh man, did I make the right decision here? Like feeling like I was in way over my head, but uh, you you end up just making it through one way right. or the other. <laughs> yep. um, now, I know that kind of going through PT school, there may have been a point where kind of, whether it was due to, I think I heard in like other podcasts that you've been on in terms of kind of, maybe it was that knowledge that you had in strength and conditioning, maybe it was not, you know, maybe it was in certain classes, not taking certain things, maybe as at least not giving off the impression that you were taking things as seriously and having that called into question. Um, can you expand upon that at all? Cause I think that that's something that I feel like a lot of people can really take a lot of maybe from that experience that you had. Yeah. So I think most programs have sort of this, uh, very loose definition of what professionalism is and you're you're kind of graded on it you know um and you kind of has somewhat of a structure with that and i know just working with a lot of students you know sacred hearts what theirs looks like what quinnipiacs looks like so all these universities expect a certain level of professionalism from the students that are within their programs which makes sense um 
you know, I was in PT school from 2009 to 2012. So it was before a lot of like the social media uh, stuff was really, really big. And um, it was before, I guess you see a lot more of what I would call like the newer aged PTs. Uh, I was really the odd man out for coming from a strength and conditioning background, not having had PT, not having been, you know, the athletic trainer with the khakis and the, you know, tucked in polo and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I guess I probably acted a little bit too much like my natural self by my second year in terms of, uh, the way I talk and, um, just the way I would dress and everything. Um, and there was nothing that could like, necessarily be deducted from a professionalism grading rubric. It wasn't like I was being rude or swearing or anything like that, but I just didn't fit. I felt, I felt like because I didn't fit this, you know, expectation or norm of what a PT student was necessarily supposed to look like to a T that um, I was, you know, brought into question on my professionalism a little bit. And I got, uh, combative with that because at that time I was doing a ton of like volunteer work in inner cities. That was my, that was my job through PT school. I worked in the North end of Hartford. I taught nutrition and I helped uh, kids write resumes to get into colleges or find careers. Uh, if they didn't want to go to college, um, in other areas. And it was a whole separate conversation, but I was doing a lot of things that nobody else in the program was doing in my free time. And yet I was still having like professionalism called into, into question, um, to a degree, so now I don't, I don't think that would be as big of an issue though, because there are more, I guess, PTs like, like me, you know, people that, uh, work out and listen to edgy music and, you know, like to dress a certain way. And, uh, they, they can kind of have the, the work version of themselves and the, you know, the non-work version of themselves and allow the two to overlap to a degree. But, um, that's kind of the backstory on, on that though. You know, it wasn't like yeah. one specific okay. necessarily. Yeah. And I, I, I find that super interesting only just because when you had brought that up a long time ago, just, you know, you're someone that, you know, I look up to a heck of a lot. So to hear like you're, you know, having a, a almost like professionalism called into question again, whether it was just like through appearance or not, it just, it was very surprising to me. And I, I definitely wanted to, uh, to learn more about that. And I think for, for some people, maybe not hundred percent in the, the same situation, but especially with social media these days, if you feel like, you know, sometimes like uh, kind of being maybe more, a little bit more strength conditioning biased or kind of questioning some of the stuff that we learn in school, you kind of feel like you're kind of on your own sometimes. Right. Um, so maybe if you feel like you don't fit that mold um, that I think social media is a nice way to kind of find like-minded individuals and, yeah. and not feel as alone as you may have previously when that wasn't as much of a thing. Yeah. I mean, I was really close with my classmates, but I also knew that my background going into PT school was so vastly different. Um, and I knew that my, like my uh, upbringing was kind of a lot different. You know, I came from a more diverse background and um, just everything was just a little bit different. Everybody else seemed more in sync though, you know, um, and it wasn't really a problem, but, um, and then maybe you tie in the fact that I did, I did tend to question things a little bit, um, you know, so that can kind of come, come, or if you're just a confident person, sometimes those things can be perceived differently. 
Um, and before I really found a lot of the people that I talk to often now through social media, uh, I always like, even to this day, but really on early on in my first uh, few years, every time I'd go to a PT con ed course, I went to a strength and conditioning con ed course and I would be the only PT there. Again, this was like 2012, 2013. And so I'd go to these strength and conditioning courses and I'd be the PT kind of like viewing things a little di differently. I just remember being in those rooms and feeling more like I was surrounded by people that I connected with in the strength and conditioning courses. And then I'd go to these PT courses and I, I just feel like an outsider, you know, it just, I don't know how other way to describe it, but, uh, so I always kind of got drawn back to, you know, strength and conditioning. Cause it just felt more like my people, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, not necessarily that I got along with all of them, but I felt more like I could be myself in that setting. Um, so that's part of the reason why I always kind of, I think get pulled back into that direction. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Um, I'm glad. Yeah. I, I kind of have had similar feelings and just in some certain con ed courses that I've been to. Uh, but now it's probably a heck of a lot different because I feel like a lot of the courses that I go to, it's a, a blend of kind of the like-minded individuals that kind of value both. So probably not as, as much of a difference as it was back then. I mean, I can um, tell you that because I know, you know, we've gone to courses together up at Boston PT and wellness. And the, the feeling that I get when I walk in there is the same feeling I used to get when I'd go to these strength and conditioning courses. I just never knew that that there was people out there. Like I didn't know there was other yeah. clinicians out there like that. You know, I yeah. had clinicians I was close with. I had clinicians I was learning from, but I never had that like camaraderie or whatever, you know, like to that level, like I would walk in and people just get it, you know? Yeah. No, I feel like yeah. these days, I feel like some people like dread going to like courses or dread having to do CEUs. And I'm like super pumped anytime I have to yeah. go to yeah. a course. Um, so especially with that, yeah, crew up there, that they're always a good time. Um, so graduating from PT school, you know, day one as a new grad clinician, uh, kind of what what was uh, kind of the the thought process there? Was there was there nerves involved? Was there just like excitement that you're done with school and you can kind of do things your way? Um, what what did that look like? Yeah, I I really was never uh, super nervous i was excited to like finally get to work i yeah. guess <laughs> you know like have like a job and like not have to like move in two or three months unless i want to do and yeah i have to study on the weekend so i i was still really close with a lot of my friends from undergrad and none of them went to grad school so they're like you know making a little money and have sort of like this level of stability that's hard to get when you're in pt school you know so um i moved in with a buddy of mine that owned a condo. So him and I kind of did a bachelor pad thing for a little while. And, um, it was commutable from where I lived with him to, to Gaylord there. So I got into a nice rhythm of like establishing, you know, some level of stability in my life, uh, but still being able to focus on growing as a clinician. Um, I did the typical thing that I think a lot of new grads do. I, I bought like a brand new bed. <laughs> so the first thing I did was yeah. get myself like a, a real bed, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, yeah, but, and then in the treating sense, um, I remember my, my first patient, my first initial eval, uh, like it was yesterday. And I've probably forgotten a lot of people between that person and where I'm at now, but I still remember that, that first eval, um, and I remember struggling and I remember patting myself on the back like a lot when somebody got better. Uh, so kind of really going with the highs and the lows and 
Um, you know, I remember asking clinicians that I worked with questions and feeling I was bothering them all the time, but they were always so helpful to me, you know, like in between patients and stuff, asking them to pick their brain. Um, I remember all that. So, uh, you know, I try to, now I'm on the other side of that. I'm the one that's, you know, that somebody wants to pick their brain on. So, uh, I still think about that, you know, <laughs> so I, I like to tell people they're doing a good job. Um, you know, cause I remember that, that feeling, but I don't think I was ever like nervous nervous but i just remember it being a lot yeah i was probably more nervous about like the non-treating stuff like like you know go schedule this person i'm like uh can they do this like do whatever you want you're the pt okay you know yeah Yeah, (laughs) like calling a doctor's office you know like all like the day-to-day stuff you don't really learn that in school (laughs) so yeah, no, definitely. Uh, learning to manage a caseload was definitely a huge part of my learning curve over the last the last year, and you know, yeah. scheduling people out, like all that stuff, like you were just saying, you don't learn in school. That was the stressful stuff, man. You know, like this, they ran out of insurance visits. What are you going to do? I'm like, I'm pretty sure I know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but now, you know, looking back, you know, again from that initial eval to kind of where you are now over the years. Um, touching on a little bit of like, how has your practice changed um, in terms of like treatment style, philosophy, just, you know, how, how has that evolved over the years? Yeah. uh, Primarily it's a lot less, I would never say I was uh, a passive therapist. I always took an active approach, but I also always thought it was important to do some level of hands-on care somewhere, you know, um, and the amount of passive care I receive, whether that's manual therapy or dry needling or some other passive modality, it is just significantly less. And that the catalyst for that was based off, you know, a better understanding of the literature and what's actually going on and, you know, lots and lots of reading. But as I sort of adopted that shift, um, I found that my job was much more rewarding and, uh, you know, kind of having this conversation with you and reflecting back on that, it probably is because for me, it, it feels a little bit more like I'm coaching people rather than fixing people, uh, I guess is how I would say it. And I just find it more rewarding to work with someone than to work on someone. Um, so it hasn't, forget the research for a second, but for me, in terms of like job satisfaction, less passive care, it's easier to manage um, when I'm busy. You know, I don't have one person here, I'm stuck with doing this and they're over there. I, I got, I can manage coaching, you know, a little bit more effectively. I enjoy writing the programs. I like, you know, challenging people where I can challenge them. And then I like studying, uh, you know, exercise, uh, physiology and I like studying exercise as it relates to pain too. So it makes con ed courses and stuff also more fun. So that's probably been the biggest shift, uh, for me. And then within the realm of exercise, I feel like, Every time I look back on a note from a year or two ago, I'm like, oh man, what was I, you know, what was I doing? <laughs> um, so, and that's all part of the fun though, too, is, you know, you know that a couple of years from now, you'll be treating differently. And uh, I think the best clinicians are the ones that embrace that. Yeah, I think you just touched on a really good point there. And reflecting back, and if you're not looking back at, you know, whether it's coaches looking back at old programs that you wrote or, you know, treatment notes from, you know, patients a couple of years back. It's like, if you're not like questioning yourself being like, what the heck was I doing? Like 
there's probably a problem with kind of with that. And, and you're probably missing the boat on as far as kind of keeping yourself up to date with things and just evolving, you know, in a science, in a field that we are in, you know, being science-based it's, it's got to evolve. Um, cause that's just how things work. Um, yep. now and I'll tell you, I, I think as you get more experience, it gets harder actually to change how you practice because, um, you know, when you're a younger clinician, you aren't as confident in what you're doing. You don't really have an established set of ways. So you're easily influenced. And um, when you're easily influenced, you can um, hopefully, you know, talk to the right people, take the right courses, do the right readings and, um, you know, head in the right direction. Um, But as you get, like when I go to a course now and I learn a different exercise parameter that might be useful for a particular patient, I have to like consciously try (laughs) to incorporate that and not just do what I what I would have done a week, a month or a year ago. Um, so that's figuring out how to crack that code, uh, in terms of changing your own behaviors. is also kind of part of the fun, you know, like I want to start taking vitals more, like how do I get mm. myself to actually take vitals on an IE? Like it's, it can't just say I'm going to do it. Cause when the initial valve comes around, that person's in front of me, you start going through the motions like you normally do. So, um, that's kind of where I'm at. I think career wise too, is, you know, how do I, make sure I'm not just reading things um, and saying like, okay, that makes sense. But how am I integrating that into clinical practice? Um, and it's harder to do that on year eight than it was on year one. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting perspective um, that you just brought up there. Um, it always comes down to like behavior change, I guess right? it's easier. It's <laughs> easy, always, always easier to, to say things and to actually get it, to get it done. Um, right. Now being, you know, growing over the years and things like that, how long, if, if it has even happened yet, like how long until you feel like for you personally that you're like, all right, I kind of, I know what I'm doing here. And like, you don't feel like lost all the time. I feel like, you know, especially in, it still happens to me, like, you know, time to time and and day to day, even it's like, am I, do I know what I'm doing? Like a hundred percent, like, and you kind of have these questions, you're questioning yourself and, you know, does that, when does that kind of, maybe fade away or is it always kind of there a little bit as you, as you kind of keep going in, in your career? Yeah. I think it's, it's always going to be there, but uh, it does get a little smaller sometimes, you know um, you, or maybe what's more realistic is that you get more comfortable um, treating without being certain on what you're doing necessarily. You feel confident enough to have a, a place to start and you feel confident enough that you will change things as they kind of organically evolve, you know, um, that's sort of the dynamical <laughs> system that we, that we do. So I might not, you know, on year one, I might just go, geez, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with this patient. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And you know, all this sort of stuff. Now I might say, I, th- I think this is a good place to start. Let's, you know, have a conversation with the patient about that. See if they're on board with it, start running it. And then based off the response we get, we'll, we'll start tweaking it, you know, and, until it kind of makes sense. And um, I think as I said before, uh, when I was a new grad too, you take the people that don't do well, you take it so personally, it's just like such a terrible feeling. And then when people do do well, you feel like, you know, like you're this awesome therapist. And I try to, not, uh, when someone doesn't do well, um, I try to not let that mean 
to me that I'm being a bad therapist. You know, not everybody's going to get better. And I wish that somebody told me that on my first day of school. I wish someone told me, I wish somebody told me that every now and then <laughs> still, you know, not everybody's going to get better, but if you're going to adopt that mindset, you should also be willing to say that some people might've gotten better even without your help. You just kind of got to like, you know, balance yourself out on both ends of that a little bit. Um, and again, I think that that ties back into some of the job satisfaction stuff I was, I was talking about before too, because um, you know, I don't know quite what North Haven's like now, but I, you know, the, the caseload when I was there was challenging. So if every person that wasn't getting better, um, really negatively affected me, you know, emotionally that that's like really draining, you know? Um, so you, you just can't do that for 30 years or however long we're doing this thing for, you know? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I, that, you know, not that long ago I had, you know, it was just like one day where I felt like everyone that was just coming through the door was just like, it was just yeah. not, things were worse, not getting better. And like, you know, that can be like you were saying before, it's, it's tough and to not to always take that personally um, and like get beat down by that. But then also like there are days when like, like you're saying, like everyone's like, everyone's doing great. And they come in, you know, just the other day, yeah. I had a patient, you know, it was like my fourth time seeing him and he came in, he's like, He's like, I feel fantastic. And then it just became like a, a discharge day out of, yeah. out of nowhere. Um, but I think you also alluded to something really good there too, is like that may have happened without me at all. And not always just kind of thinking that, you know, kind of, I guess being a little bit more realistic in terms of like, I may have had nothing to do with that outcome it may have just happened, just, you know, regression to the mean, that sort of thing. And so yes, allowing yourself to like be happy that someone's having a positive outcome, but also realizing that, you know, you're not some crazy, you know, magician that, that just right. heals people. Um, and on the flip side, you know, some people just aren't going to get better. You can do everything by the, by the book, if you want to say it that way, um, or kind of approach, you know, dealt with it in the way that, you know, evidence you know would say to to take care of it and you felt like you said everything in the best way that you could have and and you still aren't going to have the outcome that you want with that patient um and that's just normal right and you know when you have that the growth mindset um you're going to try to get better regardless of what's happening with your patients because that's what a growth mindset is so <laughs> it is possible to have somebody um, to have not every patient get better and not, not take that as a reflection on you as a bad therapist, but also still want to be a better therapist. You know, I think it sounds like those two things are mutually exclusive, uh, but, but they're not. And it's also possible to have people get better and, um, you know, kind of still want to be a better therapist, you know? So if you have that growth mindset, um, that's there regardless of what your outcomes look like. Um, but if, if you're listening to this and you're like a newer grad and you sometimes wonder if you're doing a good job or not, think of whatever PT you look up to the most, even if it's someone you don't, you've never met before and really ask yourself, like, what do you think their, however we would define success with physical therapy, what do you think their, their outcomes look like compared to yours? And if you're trying your best and trying to get better, I don't think anybody's you know, batting a hundred out here, you know, with this, in this field, I think the people that we probably look up to the most as PTs, I really don't think they're doing that, that much better than, than 
we might think we're doing, you know, I just think that they probably know how to communicate a little bit more effectively. I think they might do little things to connect with their patients or follow up with them that, you know, people might not do well. I think they might be good at, you know, taking a really good subjective history, but also identifying objective measures when they're, when they're indicated all the little things they do really, really well. Um, and I think that probably helps their outcomes, but I don't think it's going to make them get 90% of people better where somebody else might only get 40% of people better. I think a lot of success depends on, uh, honestly, the, the caseload you're working with Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then, uh, you know, the other little things I was talking about. So, yeah. And I think, looking, having clinicians that you look up to, I think people that I look up to, you know, you being one of those people, it's like people that are humble enough to admit that they're not batting a thousand and, you know, just being upfront with that and not just, you know, portraying like their wins all the time. Being yeah. like, you know, I don't, I don't always win all the time. I don't always know. I feel like I know what I have, have, you know, what's going on. Um, and I think like being involved with, with level up and clinical athlete, being exposed to people that think that way and are humble enough to kind of put that out there have been kind of some of the people that I've, I've learned from the most and look up to the most, because it's just, it's refreshing to hear that it's, you know, normal to not, you know, bat a thousand, like you're saying. Right. I think it was, uh, I think it was um, Adam Meekins, maybe like a year or two ago, had one of his things on his Instagram, like, you know, ask me a question. And I think somebody asked him, I think it was him, asked him, you know, what percentage of your patients get better? And he wrote back like in classic kind of Adam Meekins language, like, I don't know, maybe 50% or something like that, you know? And it was just this little question amongst a million questions, but it just caught my, my eye because nobody ever talks about that stuff. You know, nobody ever kind of throws that number out there and, and puts themselves out. Like it's kind of a vulnerable thing to, to, to say what your success rate might be, <laughs> you know, because we kind of assume that everybody's like out there crushing it and we're not, you know? Um, so I thought that was really cool to see that. And so when I, when I do these conversations, um, particularly if I know that it's like a new grad audience, that's one of the things I wish people told me early on is like, not so much that not everybody's going to get better, but like, you know, the other stuff that I was talking about, kind of taking your wins gracefully and not taking your losses like personally, but still always trying to just do better regardless of what the, what the patients are doing, you know? Yeah. I love that. Um, now being kind of an adjunct professor and, you know, CI yourself now, kind of how do you approach kind of taking a student in, um, you know, do you try to kind of have conversations about that sort of stuff? Um, do you, you know, have you, I guess in another part to that question being like, have you seen an evolution kind of, of maybe people being more kind of like we talked about maybe being more like having that strength and conditioning background coming into the clinic now as a student? Uh, I'll do the, that last part of that question first, cause that's one that comes up quite a bit. Um, the short answer to that is I'm not sure. It's hard to tell if uh, I, I definitely think there's a trend in that direction um, where students either have an interest in strength and conditioning or more so a trend where some students recognize early on that there is information outside of their curriculum, outside of the four walls of the university that they're at. And that's more important to me. Um, just understanding that there's a lot you're not going to learn. Um, that's more important to me than whether somebody has a strength and conditioning background because the strength and conditioning stuff, 
with some of the students, I've seen it go both ways. Maybe I was like this when, when I was in school, but they do kind of think because they have a, they've coached a little bit or something like that, that they, they know like a lot about exercise and they may know a lot about exercise, but we're talking about most of the time, you know, pain and and movement and exercise. It's, it's not just exercise, you know? So <clears throat> I do see a little bit of that, but I also recognize that with the course I teach and kind of my name and the things that the people that I network with, that there's probably a little bit of an echo chamber there too. So, you know, people elect my course as an elective. So the students that are, you know, take my course elect to take it over the other options. So of 60, you know, Quinnipiac students, I'm getting 25 roughly um, that are more interested in this stuff and the other, the other bunch go on to one of the other electives. So I see it in my course for sure, but you know, I kind of question how reliable or valid uh, my personal information is. But I, I think more importantly though, what I've seen the last few years is more, people reaching out to me is saying, Hey, I have an opportunity to take a strength and conditioning elect uh, course to teach this course or to teach an exercise based course where I went to school or something like that. Um, so do you have any uh, feedback for me? And so I get a lot of those and I, I, I really try to, to help people out with that. Um, because, and that's been pretty cool to see that, you know, um, all the way from, you know, Eric Soklowski up at UHAR, but I've had, I don't know, I probably had, maybe a dozen at this point, people reaching out to me all over the country um, saying that they're going to be starting similar electives in their, in their courses and their curriculums and are not sure where to start that sort of thing. So that's really cool to see. Yeah. So I do think it's getting into the programs more. Very cool. Um, being a, a CI, do you kind of like have, do you start to bring in, like, do you, bring in like other kind of research to their attention and kind of like, you know, you go on your clinical rotations and you kind of try to integrate everything that you learned in school. And like, you're trying to right. figure it out all on day one. Do you kind of have those conversations beforehand or do you just kind of, you know, let that evolve on its own organically? Uh, I try to get a, I have, and this is something we're trying to develop more at, at Gaylord. Um, I have, my files of research articles, I'd like them to read. Um, I assign them, you know, some per week, but if things organically come up, I'll pull some stuff that I have on hand and have them read that, you know, if we have a ACL case uh, and they're not quite sure about programming for that, I'll pull up an article for that, whether, you know, it was what I was going to assign or not. Um, but I definitely would say, you know, I don't want them to come in and be that guy that's like, you know, everything you learned in school is wrong or something like that. Cause that's, first of all, it's not true. It's just yeah. that you didn't learn enough in school. It's not that what you learned is wrong necessarily. Some of what you learned, you know, I would argue against, <laughs> but uh, so I try to slowly uh, titrate that in though. And then you kind of naturally assess the student's response to that. Like if they're eating it up and they're all about it, or do they kind of really struggle to, you know, this kind of conflicts with what I previously thought. Oh my gosh, I don't know anything got to pump the brakes and go a little slower so you know my last student was just he was just phenomenal in terms of like just soaking this all up and um you know it was just a really great uh great student and he really took to like a lot of the what i guess we would call soft skills and he ended up doing 
his in-service on like communicating with you know patients and kind of the research behind it and stuff. So that was sort of like a proud CI moment, but I've, I've had it go a little bit the other way too. I'm pretty, I've been pretty lucky so far with, with my students though, for the most part. Um, I've had anywhere from good to great students. I really haven't had anybody that I was like super disappointed in. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that's awesome to hear that they kind of did their in-service on that. That's, that's still, I feel like something that's unfortunately undervalued in, you know, I feel like it's it's becoming more of a thing, but like you kind of alluded to earlier, it might just be the echo chamber that I'm also. Yeah. Well, well I think that some of the universities will start to use buzzwords like biopsychosocial, but the professors currently there aren't familiar with it enough to teach it. So like they don't, you know, the students know like at Sacred Heart, they know the word, they kind of have an idea of what it is, but they have no idea how like what that means in terms of like working, like what it actually means when you do something. Like if I gave them a sheet of paper and told them to write down, you know, what biopsychosocial means or something about pain science, they would be able to put something on paper. If I told them to explain to me how that impacts clinical practice, I don't know if they could do that though. So, um, so I don't think like a lot of what I'm saying is like super new, but the research is new. And then the expectation on how to like actually integrate that, that could go against what they've done in other, uh, clinical rotations because I, I haven't had a lot of like first or second cl- I tend to get students towards the end um, I don't know if that's just by chance or what this scenario is with that so usually I'm asking a lot of questions about like prior CIs and what they told them and what do they think about that and you know where do you stand on this and if they want to say something that um, there w- all my students are welcome to say something that goes against what I say but you know let's uh, do a little journal club throwdown, you know, <laughs> show me, you know, show me your cards and I'll yeah. show you my cards <laughs> and we'll, we'll hash it out together, you know? And I, I don't like, I'm not doing it in an intimidating way because I want them to feel comfortable doing that. But um, if you're going to say something that, uh, or want to do an intervention that goes against something that I might typically recommend, you know, can you show me something to support your decision-making process? Or are you just going, you know, off of what you learned at your last clinical? Yeah. Definitely. Um, I think that's cool. Just again, fostering those discussions, I think is like the key to, to growth in terms of whether, whether at the end of the day you end up agreeing or not, just having a discussion is invaluable. Um, getting, um, you know, kind of, you know, to the end of, of kind of what I wanted to talk about today, cause I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, again, I've alluded to this a number of times, but again, kind of someone like yourself and again, Eric Soko as well, like, you know, being, you know, a husband, you know, you're a father, you're a clinician, you coach remotely for the most part, and also being an adjunct professor, like how in the world do you manage everything that you have going on? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, the way people usually, ask, you did a good job with that, Mike, because the way people usually ask this is how do you do that, all that without feeling burnt out? And my response is some days I, I do feel burnt out and some days I don't. Um, I don't, I don't think avoiding the feeling of being burnt out is necessarily my goal. Um, you know, if it, if it really starts to affect me or if it really starts to affect my relationship with my wife or my kids, they, they come first. I would gladly stop one of my other jobs if I thought it was jeopardizing my family. Um, but otherwise, I don't try to, I just kind of 
go through when motivation's high, I take advantage of it. And when motivation's low, I just roll up my sleeves and get done what needs to get done, even though I might not want to do it. That's the best way I can, I can say it. So I love coaching. I love teaching. I love treating. Sometimes I come home and I have to program for people at eight or nine o'clock at night and I don't want to do it, but I have to do it, you know, but most of the time I really enjoy that um, endeavor. Uh, at this point in my career, I feel comfortable telling people no, or in your situation, Mike saying, I want to do that, but like, I can't do it now. I, I honestly don't know when I can. And then, you know, if they care enough, they'll keep asking me and we'll figure it out, which is what, what we're doing right now. Really? <laughs> this is probably literally the 20th time you've asked me to be on the podcast. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to be on, I swear. So, <laughs> so, uh, you know, but if I didn't want to be on, I would have told, I would have told you, uh, that I didn't want to, I didn't have time. I would have made up like, like something else where I would have made it clear that I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. You know, I would have said no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I pick and choose my battles and stuff like that. My wife, my wife by far is like deserves like 90% of the credit for all the stuff that I do because she, my wife is a, this is where it gets kind of interesting. My wife's a gymnastics coach. And so there's more parallels and you would think to what I do and what she does. Um, then probably I appreciate it when we first started uh, dating. Um, she kind of gets that growth mindset. She she has that in her world. She has gymnastics con ed. She has mentors that she looks up to. Um, she has career goals. She's a judge for this level. She wants to be a judge for higher levels. She has things that she wants to do. So if I have to go to a con ed course that's in Boston um, instead of the one in Hartford because it's better, she gets that. You know, if I... Um, need to spend a little bit of our own money to to take a course or something like that. She supports that too. Um, she also gets that, you know, coaching is weird hours. I mean, she's not going to be home probably until 9.30, 10 o'clock at night tonight. That's just when she coaches. Um, and then she also, I think, probably realizes that for me, like training and coaching and treating are all sort of like in the same wheelhouse. They all kind of go together. And, um, you know, training is as much of a thing for me to feel better about myself, but it's also something I do to be a better coach and to be a better clinician. It all goes together. So, so she respects that. And then there's just a lot of communication on, you know, when things need to get done surrounding the kids. Um, I used to try it when I had just one kid, um, my daughter, Aaliyah, you know, she would kind of get into something for a little while. So I could do a little half hour work on the side. Uh, now that I have two and that they're a little older and stuff too, I really try not to do that. Um, you know, one of the nice things about my, you just figure it out based off your schedule. So because my wife gets home pretty late and the kids are both in bed by eight, I typically have from eight to nine 30 to play catch up. And every week I have like, I don't want to call it a to-do list, but I have, things that want to get done during the week. Uh, and so like last night was yesterday was kind of a long day and I had that time eight to nine 30 roughly where the kids were asleep and my wife wasn't home yet. And I looked at my list and I said, F it, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I thought to myself, well, geez, I got the podcast with Mike tomorrow, Thursday's new year's Eve, Friday's new year. You know, so I started to do a little planning in my head on when I'm going to get stuff done. Um, and so it's all going to get done. Uh, but that's sort of the, the stuff that goes on. So having a supportive spouse is by far like a must. Um, but not just expecting them to be supportive of you, but overly communicating, you know, what's going on. I mean, we communicate 
on what's going on per month, per week, per day, per hour. Cause the way our schedules are, you know, when I get out of the clinic on my early days, uh, minutes matter in terms of her getting to her job on time and, and switching the kids around. So like I had to tell my patients, I have to go because I can't stay an extra couple of minutes. You know, I have to go get my kids. Um, and I know my priorities lie with, with Jamie and Aaliyah and Demi. So it helps makes things a little bit easier, um, with that. And then I only really say yes to things at this point that I enjoy doing. I don't pick things based off of financial gain, really. Um, I pick things that I think I will like to do. And if there's, you know, some financial gain involved with that too, then awesome. <laughs> plus, yeah, extra plus. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but if you pick what you like to do and you do a good job with it, at some point, it kind of all works out anyways. So. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you work for Gaylord too. We're not seeing 30 patients a day. You know, that's a big part of it too. I couldn't do the things I do if I worked at a clinic that was really like a mill or really pushing me for productivity. And I had to do a bunch of notes at home and stuff like that. I mean, we got to pay, we got to see enough patients to keep the lights on and pay our salaries. But um, for the most part, you know, I don't feel like I get burnt out at work, which allows me to pick up other things that are rewarding to do outside of work. Yeah. I don't even want to imagine writing notes for 30 patients a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, but awesome, man. I honestly like having this conversation with you. I feel like I got so much out of it, not in terms of just like clinically and, and that stuff, but just almost on just like a human personal level of just, you know, managing kind of all the things that you manage and, and hearing that, you know, family comes first to you, I think just kind of speaks to the, to the person that you are and, you know, doing things out of just kind of your, your passion and really just, you know, what fuels you. And then if, Hey, if there's financial gain, then that's an added bonus. But, um, I, I absolutely love hearing that and, and truly respect that. Um, for, for anyone that like would like to, to learn more about you or just get in touch with you in general, um, what's the best way for someone to get a hold of you? Uh, probably just my Instagram. It's just Eric underscore resilient. Um, people message me through there and I'm, I tend to be pretty uh, quick to message back through Instagram. Um, that's, that's the main thing I do, uh, remote coaching, you know, I work in Cheshire. So, um, anybody that has questions on anything that I can help them with, just shoot me a message and we can hash it out. People that, you know, a lot of people want to reach out to me about, like I was talking about with the uh, courses, starting their own course at a university or yep. questions about that. That's the best way to get a hold of me to start the conversation. And then from there, I give you, you know, a cell or an email or something, but um, yep. cool. I tend to check my Instagram the most. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I guess last thing before we uh, sign off here, if you had to think of like one piece of advice for either student or new grad kind of coming out of, you know, not just PT school, Cairo school too, anything like that. Um, what, what would that be? That's a good one. I'm sure a lot of people give a lot of the same, uh, advice. So I'll try to do something a little different. Um, enjoy your weekends, <laughs> you know, cause assuming you don't work weekends, um, you know, when you get out of work, on Friday and you don't have to study for something on Monday, that's a good feeling. So don't feel guilty about enjoying your weekends. Work hard when you work hard and then relax when it's time to relax. 
That's my yeah. advice. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. It comes out. What's that saying? It's like, you gotta, you gotta take care of yourself in order to take care of others. Yeah. It's best. Yeah. Something like that. Um, yeah. all right, man. Well, again, thank you very much for, for being on. Um, absolutely loved, um, talking with you. Um, hopefully we can do it again sometime, uh, again in the future. Yeah, for sure. This was fun. This is great questions, Mike. This is great. Awesome. Um, All right, everyone. Well, thank you again for tuning into today's episode of Mike Check. If you haven't already, please um, subscribe and leave a review if you'd like. Um, But otherwise, that'll do it for today's episode and I'll catch you guys on the next one.